I, I want to begin by asking a question, and don't misunderstand this question. Uh, for those of you with younger children, this is no commentary on how you choose to parent your children. In fact, I don't know how many of you do choose to do that. But my question has to do with the fact that it seems like today's generation of parents, dare I use the word, coddle their children more than maybe generations past. And I'm, I'm beginning with this question because I don't think I'm qualified anymore to actually answer this question. My children are all grown up. They're all uh, full-grown adults, so uh, I'm not sure I really am qualified. Uh, so let me just ask that rhetorically. You can think it through your head as you've maybe been raising your children or seeking advice as you parent or maybe you're observing others parent. Does it seem to you like maybe uh, generations past let their kids get away with more stuff or we didn't necessarily bubble wrap them in every life situation. At least that's my perspective. And since I don't think I am qualified to ask, I did a little bit of looking into the concept of, it's called helicopter parenting, where parents are constantly keeping vigil over their children. It's, it's almost like they can't let them even out of their sight. And I'm not saying you should be negligent of your children, but it, it seems like when I was a kid, you know, at a certain point in the day, mom just said, go out and play, and we we're pretty much on our own. And if we got in trouble, we got in trouble. If we got hurt, we got hurt. So what I did was I actually uh, uh, did a little digging into this whole concept of, of helicopter parenting. And come to find out, it, it actually began about the first part of this century. So about 20 years, it almost seems like uh, parents have been much more protective than, say, in generations past. And, and part of this uh, research that was provided was there's been a, an analysis and study on parenting styles and whether or not uh, this form of parenting is, is better for children or not. Come to find out experts, uh, both social experts and psychological experts, are now discovering that if we overparent our children, what it actually does is later on in life creates situations of depression and anxiety. And the reason they reach that is it's because they're saying children are not really prepared to deal with troubles in this life and the struggles that we daily face. And when they are confronted with a hard life decision, uh, oftentimes this generation turns to mom and dad and, okay, what should I do? And that's great if you have good and thoughtful parents, but that isn't always the situation. So the question is, is it better to overprotect our children or, or maybe, if you will, let them learn a little bit on their own? Come to find out that sometimes letting our children learn lessons the hard way in life isn't the worst way to go. So, for instance, let them learn that jumping on the furniture isn't... <laughs> A great thing to do or, or another life lesson and I'm sure many of you learn this that if you don't watch out where you're going you're always going to end up in trouble that's that's just that's simply a life lesson that you can't avoid thank goodness they had a helmet on that kid right okay as we come to today's lesson you might not at first go well this is a lesson on parenting but in many ways it is and and not just parents with young children but really spiritual parenting, how God parents us as his children. At first glance, it just doesn't look that way until we start to dig into this next lesson in the hidden glory of our Savior Jesus, and we find that he shows amazing wisdom as to how he helps his spiritual children, the disciples. So let me set the scene for today's lesson. I'll show you that in a moment, and then we'll start to reconstruct, if you will, what exactly this amazing lesson is that Jesus has for us today. These are uh, our lesson. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, 
he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So this is Mark's record of the second time that Jesus actually calms the sea. The first time, and not let's not confuse it with that, the first time he actually started out by being in the boat, fell asleep, a storm comes up, the disciples come and wake him up, and, and he calms it. Well, this happens sometime later in Jesus' ministry, so let me set the scene for you. Um, and it takes place not too long after last week's lesson where we had Jesus rejected in his hometown of Nazareth for a second time. As soon as they leave Nazareth, what Jesus does is he pairs off the disciples and he sends them out two by two to go throughout the land and preach the message that the Messiah had come and that he was, in fact, that Messiah. One of the things that Jesus enabled the disciples to do were to perform miracles, to heal those who were sick, and even to cast out demons. And this, if you will, practice ministry of the disciples was causing such a commotion that news of it reached King Herod down south. And it's at this point the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, insert something that actually had happened much earlier, and that's the death of John the Baptist. The reason why it's inserted here and that information is provided is because Herod thinks that maybe God had raised John the Baptist back to life. Jesus was making that kind of impact throughout the land personally and then through the disciples. Now, we know it's not John the Baptist. We know it's the Lord himself and that he's getting the disciples ready to take over the earthly visible ministry that he would be leaving once he pays for the sins of the world. But they needed practice and oftentimes we refer to this as their vicar year or, or practice their mission work amongst the land of Israel. So they get done with that mission work. They come back and they share their excitement with Jesus and they talk about the amazing things that they were able to do in his name on behalf of the gospel. And it's at that point then, after all of this activity has taken place, that Jesus decides, you know what, we need a little bit of a break. The disciples were tired from all that they had been doing. Jesus was busy himself. So they're trying to get away just for an opportunity to recharge their batteries. Well, Jesus' popularity at this point is so far off the charts that as they head to this village of Bethsaida, people hear about it, they see him passing by, and they start to follow him by the hundreds and ultimately by the thousands until they get to the uh, mountainous region, and we find now that there's a problem. And the disciples bring it to Jesus and go, you know, these people have been following us all day. They haven't had anything to eat, so of course they're hungry. Now here's where a pattern begins that not only takes place in this context, but we also see it in our lesson today, that Jesus is trying to teach the disciples a very important life lesson, and unfortunately it seems like they're going to have to learn it the hard way. So first and foremost he says, okay, I recognize all these people need something to eat, you feed them. So Jesus doesn't automatically snap his fingers and all of a sudden provide this huge banquet for the people. First, he wants the disciples to wrestle with us a little bit. How should we solve this problem of all these mouths to feed and 
And we just really don't have the resources to take care of that. And these are the two options they came up with. The first is, is basically send them away, let them fend for themselves. Well, if you think about it, 5,000 at least, and if you want to estimate, that was only the count of men, it could have easily been 10, 15,000 people in such a remote area. There's just not going to be enough food. Uh, so that's not going to work. And then their option number two didn't seem a whole lot better. They found a young boy who had five loaves of bread and two fish, and even they recognized that wasn't going to get the job done. So here they were with the life problem without any solution. And so what Jesus does is, okay, have them sit down, put them in groups of 50. He blesses the food, and then he miraculously feeds the 5,000, and he has all that food left over. So basically he's shown them how we are to confront the challenges of this life, and simply put, the answer is not always within our realm of capability. And so what Jesus is trying to teach them is, is you turn to the Lord. He's supposed to be your first response, not your last resort. Now, if they had gotten this lesson, then the next part, or our lesson today, probably would not have been necessary. But since they didn't get it, since they were going to have to learn this the hard way, then out of love, and we find a bit of Jesus' hidden glory in showing the wisdom that he has in how to teach us the lessons we need to learn for this life, he then proceeds to say, okay, you guys get in a boat and head out to sea. Now, I want to just clarify one thing, and I didn't necessarily note it, and maybe already you're thinking, okay, we heard one thing in the gospel lesson, and it seems like Mark contradicts it. Luke says they, were, uh, they had gone to Bethsaida, and so now they would have been heading away, and now it sounds like Mark says they're heading to it. Well, the preposition hasn't been rendered accurately. It can either mean into or to or away from, and that's how it should have been rendered. So they start out in the region of Bethsaida. He puts them in this boat, waves goodbye, and then Mark tells us Jesus went back up into the mountains where he began to pray. That's the scene for today's lesson. Disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus left behind praying. Well, what comes next is then Mark shows us a period of time goes by. And in our language, these seem like very generic uh, time slots, but if you do a little bit of work, you can figure out. So it was before evening, before 6 p.m., that they took off onto the Sea of Galilee, and now at least 6 p.m. has rolled by, and we're somewhere in that six-hour time frame of 6 p.m. to midnight. As the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is still on the land praying, what happens is a sudden storm comes up. And I've used a map that shows the topography of the area so that we can remind ourselves why sudden storms and severe storms took place oftentimes on the Sea of Galilee. They were, uh, the sea was surrounded by mountains, and you know what happens to a weather front once it comes over a mountain range? It picks up speed, and once that hits the water, all of a sudden you have this storm that came out of nowhere, and what should have been a nice leisurely cruise across the Sea of Galilee turns into this life or death situation. Now, most of us would assume as soon as this is happening, Jesus, again, would have shown up, snapped his fingers, and made everything all right. But he doesn't do that. In fact, if you really start to dig into this, Jesus does just the opposite. What we have is that Jesus remains on the land, and he's watching as this is going on. And so you understand, it, it, he didn't allow them, if you will, to risk their lives to the point. Sometimes we have a picture of this tiny boat and 12 guys all crammed in there. The word actually describes a ship, a sailing ship. So it was of good size, and once a storm comes, then they would have had to have lowered the sails, and then their only means of propulsion would have been using oars. Now, these were experienced boatsmen, 
And yet we find that when this storm comes up, Jesus allows all of this to go on. He doesn't quick run to them and wrap them in bubble wrap and say, here, let me fix this for you right away. Now, Mark tells us one more thing. It wasn't until the fourth watch of the night that Jesus goes out. And then when you understand the way that the Jews mark time, this puts us somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So at a minimum, if you do the math, at a minimum, Jesus sat and watched his disciples try and struggle against the storm for at least three hours. And personally, I think it was a whole lot longer than that. But a minimum of three hours, Jesus is on land watching the disciples struggle with this storm. So what happens next? Then he goes out to the sea, and immediately we think, okay, he's going to save them. That's not exactly what Mark says. He uses this word which actually says that Jesus starts out by walking on the water, and he's headed in basically the same destination. The word says that he came close to where they were in that boat out in the storm he sees, but it does in no way imply that he was headed to the boat. It's almost as if they're on parallel paths. But he was close enough so that once the disciples see him, they start to freak out because their first assumption is this is a ghost. That's the way it's translated. Now, you have to understand there's two different words in this language for what we would call a spirit. Noima, which is the word that's normally used with the Holy Spirit, is not used here. The word that is used here is the one that gave us our English word phantom. So it could be a ghostly-like uh, appearance if you want. At very least, they might have assumed it was an evil spirit, which we know would be fallen angels. The point is, is that their first thought was not, hey, there's somebody walking out on the water. It must be Jesus here to help us. Their first thought is, we are in terrible danger. Not only are we risking our lives in this boat fighting this terrible storm, but now we got this on top of it. So I hope I'm setting the scene correctly for you. And this kind of helps to give us a little insight in the desperate situation in which they found themselves in. And the worst part wasn't the storm or what they thought was a phantom, but it was their state of mind. It was where they were at, if you will, spiritually. This word kind of tells us, terrasso, that it wasn't just fear that they were fighting against. This word describes like water in a boiling pot. It's agitated. It's irritated. It's, the word is roiled. It's not calm. It's the exact opposite, which helps us then to understand where they're at. Now, let's recount how the day went. They started out tired already. Uh, dare I say, borderline exhaustion. So Jesus is thinking, we need some time away. The problem is, is that this would now entail a full day's journey of walking, and when they got to their destination, instead of being able to sit down and relax, they had thousands of people that they had to take care of. The disciples were the ones involved in distributing the food and then picking up the leftovers. And if you've ever had a big Thanksgiving meal, you know the prep and the cleanup is, is the hardest part. So they're even more tired. Well, maybe now they can finally have a chance to relax. So Jesus puts them in the boat, what should have been a nice leisurely sailing cruise across the Sea of the Galilee, all of a sudden turns into this life or death situation where for hours they're trying to row against the storm, making no progress. And then on top of that, you put this strange vision out on the water, and the last thing they needed was another problem. I don't know if I'm painting the picture clearly enough, but Jesus is nicely comfortable up on this mountainside watching as basically the disciples' day 
is falling to pieces. And you might stop for a moment and go, okay, this series is all about the hidden glory of Jesus, and every single lesson that we've been studying shows us some amazing aspect of our Savior, and this is all new information or insight into sometimes it almost looks like Jesus doesn't care what's going on in our lives. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is where we start to see the hidden glory of Jesus and that he doesn't always swoop in to rescue us in the way that we think he should. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus always rescues us, but it's not always according to our human way of thinking. Sometimes it takes far more love, and for those of you who have parented children, sometimes it takes far more love to let that child learn the hard way when it would be so much easier for us just to step in, separate them from whatever we don't want them doing, and push them on their way off to the next life lesson. Sometimes the only way, and if you've ever had a strong-willed child, and I've had one, and I am one, sometimes the only way to teach a child like that safety and your love is for them to actually go through the hard lessons of life. So what's the lesson here? Well, look at how Jesus responds. He doesn't go to the boat, say, storm, be calm, and it all ends. In fact, Mark, and I'll remind you of his unique writing style, it's very brief, he leaves out a lot of details. Mark leaves out this whole interaction and episode that's recorded for us in Matthew 14. Jesus shows up and says, hey, just chill, I got this. And Peter's the one going, hey, if it's you, Lord, prove it. Let me walk on the water. And he does for a while, and we're all impressed. Hey, Peter's walking on water. Next thing you know, he's sinking because the wind and the waves get to him, and he has to cry out to Jesus for help. Lord, save me. And he does. He grabs him by the hand. He picks him up, takes him to the boat, and the storm ends. But we dare not miss all of the love and wisdom that Jesus shows us before that storm comes to its end. He offers us two things. Be courageous and don't be afraid. And I know for many of us that might look like the same thing from opposite sides of the coin, but they're actually two separate commands. One is be courageous, which if you've done any study into fear and courage, courage doesn't mean you don't have any fears. Courage means you're able to face those fears. Jesus offers the disciple a reason to face those fears. It's me. I'm the Savior. I'm Messiah. I'm the one that has been razzling and dazzling you with miracle after miracle, and you're just not getting the plot. That I'm here to rescue you, not only from the difficult situations of your life, but to bring ultimate rescue to restore your relationship with God. I've taken care of the biggest problem you have, the separation from your creator and the divine. So why don't you trust me with the smaller challenges of your life? And that's where he adds, do not be afraid. And the reality is, is it's less about what we would put into the category of fear and more what we would put into the category of a lack of faith. Because the word that he uses, in the form that he uses, he says, basically he presents them with a choice. Here's the storm, and here's me. Which one should you respect more? Or dare I use, which one should you fear more? And the obvious answer is Jesus. Because he is all powerful. Even though his glory has been hidden through much of his earthly ministry, he is still the son of God, and he does still come to rescue our hearts and our lives. 
which brings this lesson full circle to us in the sense that there are many times in our own lives that our greatest fears are not spiritual. We don't think twice about the fact that God has resolved our problems with sin and brokenness, but more often than not, we're scared. We are afraid because of the life situations that we are facing. And we forget that Jesus is bigger, stronger, wiser, and more loving than anything we're ever going to face in this life. And so the question is, the life lesson for today is, why don't we turn to God first? Why does it seem like oftentimes Jesus is our last resort? Fighting the wind and fighting the waves. Every stroke of the paddle is of little use since the few feet gained are reclaimed by the storm. What was meant to be a crossing of the sea has turned into sinking in its midst. He taught God's law with authority. He brought forth bread to the multitude as a new Moses, as one greater than Moses. But where is he? Why isn't he here? How long will he be silent? Where are you? His intercession is not always obvious. Whispered prayers on a mountaintop, watching over his followers. His guidance pushes beyond comprehension, leading his people through the valley of the shadow of death. His voice commands calm into the chaos. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, he is with us. We are no longer bound by fear. If you break it down, it's really a pretty simple lesson. I mean, it's one we've been trying to learn for most of our lives. And sometimes the only way for us to learn it is to actually let the Lord teach us the hard way. And it seems like that's what the disciples required because after all of this, finally he steps in the boat, the storm calms immediately, and Mark records not one, but if you translate it correctly, two instances speaking about their amazement. They're blown away by what Jesus has just done, which should really surprise us after all of the things that they've witnessed him do, after all of the lessons they've heard him teach. How can these 12 men for one moment question the love, wisdom, and power of Jesus. And yet, Mark says they're amazed. We've had this term before, and the best English idiom I have is it knocked their socks off. They, they just could not believe what they had seen. And then Mark goes on to say they were blown away as much as they could be and filled with marvel or wonder, which basically describes the fact that they're finally holding Jesus in the awe and respect that they should, but there's still something that seems to be holding them back as far as fully placing their trust in him, not just with their eternal lives, but with their earthly lives. And Mark goes on to tell us the problem was is their hearts were hardened. That doesn't mean they were not believing in Jesus. It doesn't mean that they didn't accept him as Messiah. Maybe the better translation is their hearts were calloused. And I think we can understand that. You watch a miracle happen how many times before after a while it's like, oh, another miracle. No big deal. Our hearts can grow calloused. And that's what happened with them. They had seen Jesus do all of these things. They had heard Jesus' amazing words of love 
and wisdom. And after a while, it just didn't seem to have any big effect on their lives. But what's been exposed is the fact that too much of their heart was placed on themselves and not nearly enough on the Lord. They hadn't learned the lesson that Jesus tried to teach them earlier in the day that when you're facing a life challenge, the first thing you need to do is turn to Jesus. The next thing we need to do is not try to tell Jesus how to fix that problem. Because as God, he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. Basically, to be amazed by not only his power to help, but his wisdom in doing so. So let me ask you, what storm are you fighting against right now? I know we all have them, and we're all going to have them in varying degrees, and we're going to all have them differently. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe you're fighting that, or maybe somebody you care about very much is fighting a health issue. Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe there's some relationship that you would like to be going better than it is. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's professional. Whatever it might be, it's causing conflict in, in your life. Or maybe you had some hopes and dreams that just aren't where they should be. Maybe you had big plans for your schooling. And that's not working out the way it should. Maybe your job is starting to really grind on you. Or, or you had hopes about your career that it would take you places. It just isn't getting you there. However big or how little we look at these things in each other's lives, they are genuinely storms. And they do require courage and turning to the Lord for help. And that's a hard lesson for us to learn. This wasn't the first time Jesus tried to teach it to the disciples. And this isn't the first time we found that in Scripture. You've probably heard the old cliche. In the Bible, there are 365 different times the phrase, do not be afraid, is written for us. And of course, that matches the number of days, so every day God's telling us not to be afraid. How many times do we have to hear it, though, before we finally let it sink in and we start to live our lives without fear? and courage, trusting in the Lord. I don't know if you've been keeping count, but within less than an hour's time, we have reviewed five different aspects of God miraculously helping people. And I think sometimes because the Bible is filled with these situations, when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, that's the first thing we cry out for, is God to swoop in, divinely intervene, snap his fingers, and give us the miracle we think we need. Again, don't misunderstand. It's not a lack of faith to pray for a miracle, and it's not wrong doing so. But I'd like us to stop for at least a moment and consider if that's wise for us to not just cry out to God for help, but then to try and tell him how to help us. Doesn't that actually reveal a heart? that somewhere thinks it knows better how our lives can be fixed and how our problems can be solved, that we know a plan that's better than God's plan? And usually it's not until God does walk on the water, come to our boat, and help bail us out that we finally see not only his wisdom but his love because his solution is always infinitely better than the one that we came up with, like, ah, send them away, let them fend for themselves, or here's a little bit of earthly uh, goods to provide for us, but, you know, that's not going to go very far. Do you see how not only the disciples needed to learn this lesson, but we do as well? The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus prepared for this day and for this storm with prayer. Both he and the disciples had the same journey out on stormy seas. One group simply got into the boat, said farewell, and pushed out. 
The other one went to his heavenly father and asked for help and wisdom to resolve this situation in the best possible way. The problem is is that so often God does save us and saves us brilliantly that after a while we just simply assume it's going to be A plus B equals C and when it doesn't go that way, our most natural response is to be afraid, to be agitated, to be roiled and ultimately upset with God. Why are you not here fixing this now? Do I need to recount our most recent history within our lives in this world and how we've gotten to this place? that so often we get frustrated and we find that day after day after day there doesn't seem to be any resolution. And while we can turn to human things which are helpful, God is simply trying to teach us this lesson the hard way. Come to me and I will give you the help that you need. Has God ever failed to rescue us, not just in the best way, but always in the most loving way? Consider the greatest rescue of all, saving us from our sins. Every human solution to that problem is somehow I can fix this. Somehow I can do enough good to offset the bad. If you ask 99 out of 100 people, how do you make things right with God, you're going to get the answer, well, I'm a pretty good person. And God says, good is not good enough. I created perfection and I demand perfection. And since you can't provide that, I will. And he sends Jesus into this world, becomes one of us, and perfectly does all of the things we could not. And then when he's done with the perfect life, he puts it up as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Could you come up with a more perfect plan to rescue mankind from its sinfulness and the brokenness of this world? And so the next question is logical. Can you think of a better solution to life's problems than to simply place them into God's hands and allow him, in his wisdom and love, to send the kind of rescue that we need. Maybe the simplest lesson of all is the one that Jesus taught us by sitting on that mountainside and preparing for the challenge by beginning with prayer. And as he does that, he offers us insight into not only his power to rescue us, but his wisdom in how he chooses to do so. We're not a bunch of little fragile children that immediately need a parent running and picking us up and coddling us. Sometimes what we need from our loving Father is an education about how trustworthy He genuinely is. And if you ever doubt that, all you need to do is look what He did to save us. He sent us the most amazing rescuer. I faced a personal economic challenge that persisted for several years. It did not come about as a consequence of anyone's wrongdoing or ill will. It was just one of those things that sometimes come into our lives. It ebbed and flowed in seriousness and urgency, but it never went away completely. At times, this challenge threatened the welfare of my family and me, and I thought we might be facing financial ruin. I prayed for some miraculous intervention to deliver us. Although I offered that prayer many times with great sincerity and earnest desire, the answer in the end was no. Finally, I learned to pray as the Savior did. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I sought the Lord's help with each tiny step along the way to a final resolution. 
with no other recourse more than once, I fell down before my father, begging in tears for his help. And he did help. Sometimes it was nothing more than a sense of peace, a feeling of assurance that things would work out. I might not see how or what the path would be, but he gave me to know that directly or indirectly, he would open a way. Circumstances might change. A new and helpful idea might come to mind. Some unanticipated income or other resource might appear at just the right time. Somehow there was a resolution. Though I suffered then, as I look back now, I'm grateful that there was not a quick solution to my problem. The fact that I was forced to turn to God for help almost daily over an extended period of years taught me truly how to pray and get answers to prayer and taught me in a very practical way to have faith in God. I came to know my Savior in a way and to a degree that might not have happened otherwise or that might have taken me much longer to achieve. I learned to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I learned to walk with Him day by day.